Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is an oldie but a goodie with writer and director Lena Dunham. It was recorded back in 2017, which feels a long time ago now, but it was an absolute pleasure to get to hang out with Lena in her hotel room in London when she was here. It was an exciting, sunny morning for me. I remember it really well. So I'm really pleased to replay it for you. So I hope you enjoy listening. I feel like you and I have been internet friends for like five years. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that because I feel like we connected in a really natural, weird way. Actually, I just woke up realizing that you followed me back and I had to lie down on the floor for like five minutes and calm myself down. Well, sometimes you get a tweet and you're just like, this person's really, I mean, I don't, to be totally honest, I haven't been on Twitter by myself in like two years. Like it's always like somebody guiding me in to do one like Q&A and then me getting the fuck out of there. It was a different world back then. But back then it was the innocent days before you got, you know, bombarded by Milo Yiannopoulos' followers or whatever it is that happens now. And I just remember seeing a tweet from you and being like, that's fucking funny. And then going to your page and just being like, oh, I feel like this girl is living the life I would have if I were just to resituate myself across the pond. I was like, I literally looked and you and I were like, like rocking the same like haircut vibes. Like, and I was just like, well, this is my friend, follow. Oh, it was, it was the best. But I feel like back then it was more normal to kind of maybe message people off the cuff. I feel like, have have you changed your, I guess you have changed the way that you use social media now, perhaps. But I forget that when I met you, it was like maybe season two of Girls. Yeah, beginning of season two. And I think about this all the time because I got on Twitter. I've like my I was just thinking about my Twitter history because I love um, I was talking to a friend who was like, I love it. It's such a community for me. And I was like, well, how many followers do you have? And she said 3000. And I was like, that is fully the sweet spot Mm -hmm. because it's enough that you're really in a conversation with people but not enough that there are people who have chosen to come follow you because they despise you. So it was because just the fact is, is if you have five and a half million followers, they're not all going to be people who love and engage with your work and agree with you. And also it's just too many people to keep the party civilized. And so I'm grateful that people want to hear what I have to say. But I just remember joining Twitter in like the summer of 2009 and being like, this is heaven. Like I get to talk to like, my 100 New York friends in like a little circle. What a joy. And then my movie came out and it sort of expanded and became maybe like 5,000 people. And I thought like, oh my God, no one's ever had more Twitter followers than me. This is a dream. And then when Girls came out, it just turned into this totally different thing. And since then it sort of started to balloon. And then I, two years ago, when I last saw you, when I was in England for my book tour, was when all of the really insane attention around the chapter with my sister in my book happened and the insane attention around the chapter about my rape and Twitter just was not. I was basically realized Twitter was, as Amy Poehler would call it, cutting. So I was like, I have to get out of here. And actually Liz, who's now a producer who works with me, was my assistant at the time. And I had her take over my Twitter. And then suddenly I was like, I actually can't even expose her to what this is. Mm-hmm. So now I have an amazing professional social media team of two great women. And I send them my tweets and send them my thoughts and go, just put this into the world when you think it's appropriate and send me any responses. Like, no, mm-hmm. if there's a teenager in need or if there's somebody, you know, who just needs a fave, do it. I want them to feel good. But I just, I realized there was no result that was worth exposing myself to the energy that was Twitter Yeah, at that point. Because I, I felt like even on a personal level of being like, oh, well, Lena's now gone from this space. It felt really kind of sad because it's like, well, hang on a minute. She's someone that we want on here. And why should she have to leave? 
Oh, it's so nice. I miss like, I miss like seeing all your, like the thing I miss about Twitter, like I don't have a lot of day to day. It's really a habit where you're like, your like hand is almost trained to refresh. So I don't think about it very much. It's like when I quit Game Boy when I was 10 and for like a week, like all I could think about was like jumping on Super Mario stumps. And then I was like, okay, it's leaving my system. But I do miss like responding to being like, oh my God, I saw that movie too. Like the the sense of community that the internet created for me, especially when I wasn't a kid who had a lot of a lot of sense of community, that was like magic. And so, and it made me really sad. Like I felt the same way when I saw, I was already off Twitter when all the abuse was heaped on Leslie Jones, but I was just like, why can't, like, I've said this publicly before, Instagram's worked really hard to try to make itself a safe space yeah. for women. And I was just like, whatever First Amendment ideas Twitter is holding on to, I was like, why can't we make this a safer place for women to be? Because dissent, there's nothing wrong with people going like, I don't agree with you, or this is, they can say that in whatever way they want. But, you know, you can't be exposed to kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself all day. Talking of maybe a slight positive from not being on Twitter, yeah. because I do feel like I'm on it less because I have more stuff to be doing. And that's yep. always a good thing. Yeah. Um. So I was, obviously you're very busy. You're incredible considering also some things that you have to go through with your endometriosis. Thank you for saying that. It's something that I've had to really like forgive myself for is that my body isn't always behaving exactly the way I would want it to. Mm. We were actually just talking beforehand about kind of this refusing to be pigeonholed and having so many projects. There was one thing um, that I saw on a red carpet interview what Jenny Connor said and she said Lena's the most like the busiest most amazing person but she writes to relax. Jenny always says like the sweetest thing where I'm like yeah that's not even true but it is I mean writing has always been for me like the safe private space that you go to. Because I'm sure you felt like this as a teenager, which is like, I don't feel totally understood. I don't really understand how to be a girl in the way that people want from me. But I have this place that's just mine. And it's when I go and I read and I write and I spit my thoughts out. And of course, in high school, it was in the form of like terrible poetry and overly dramatic plays. And it was before some girls had like live journals, but I wasn't cool enough to have figured that out. So it was like my, you know, pathetic diary. And um, I really came to think about writing as like, the safest space for me. And that is something that I feel so lucky about and I never could have imagined. And it's something that just is, I feel so glad that throughout, you know, girls with critical attention, with positive attention, with my book, like writing has continued to be the place that I go when I just want to curl inward. And especially when my health really took a turn in the last two years and I would like my writing was a thing that, you know, I did it in the hospital. I did it when I was recovering the episode of girls that we just aired that kind of had this really, ins- I was really inspired because there was a big dialogue about consent. Oh my God. Episode three. Episode three. Oh, you're so, and it was also just amazing. listening to Rihanna Desperado on repeat because of you. Isn't that like the best song in the world? So good. And very cleverly placed. And thank, thank you so much. Judd was like, why are we playing Rihanna here? And I was like, listen to the lyrics, good sir. But because there's no Rihanna lyric that I haven't burned into my soul. But when I was, but like I actually ended up writing that episode the night that I came home from the hospital, just in bed because that was the place that I could go that was sort of beyond my body and beyond my experience. And that's a really, I mean, that's the, I'm sure you feel it too. Like that's the gift of loving to write. And the gift of, you know, when I think of people that are in film and TV and to make anything happen, you need like 50 other people to be in bed with your laptop and make something on your own is the it's, best. It's the best. You just need and yourself. I'm working on another book now and I forgot how good it feels to be like, oh my God, no, I don't now need to pass. I mean, I love 
my job. I love the crew of girls, but to be like, I don't need to pass this to a production designer. I'm just going to do it is like true and total magic. Because you, I always see, uh, like you wrote something for Vogue recently and then in the New York Times loads and obviously Lenny, you write a lot. Oh. And to the outside world, I think sometimes it can look like, how does she have time? But when you think about it, if you find writing relaxing, and like you say, you're writing it in bed when you get back from the hospital, I think it's something to really treasure and hold on to. I also like, someone was once like, how do you get so much done? And I was like, I don't exercise and I don't leave my house. Like so many of the things that keep people busy, like in life, I've just sort of said no to, which I'm not saying that's a good thing. Like you should exercise and you should leave your house. But like, basically like if my boyfriend's somewhere nearby, if my poodles are there, and if I have access to yogurt, I truly need nothing else. Like I've been out of America for 20 days now and Jenny was teasing me. She's like, you're the only person I know who counts how many days until their vacation's over. <laughs> I was like, I get to come home in five days. I was like, it's been amazing and I can't wait to come home in five days. And she's like, how amazing is it if you can't stop counting how long it is till you get back to your bed? But I don't know, but like something I love about London, I feel like it's, there's a reason why so many amazing writers are either British or Anglophiles is because there's something about the weather here that's perfect for a bookish disposition. Oh, yeah, you don't have to go outside. The excuses of when it's raining, great, cancel everything. I'm going to write all day in bed. It's the dream. Like when I we got here the first day and I looked out the window and there was like rain falling on cobblestone streets, I was like, I've been born in the wrong place. And when I'm in Los Angeles and people are like, who wants to meet for a hike and talk? I'm like, are you people smoking crack? <laughs> Why would we ever want to talk while walking? <laughs> I'm worried that if I ever moved anywhere sunny, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to write outside. I just want to drink, I don't know, wine. That's Whenever I go anywhere sunny, it's either like me like like wincing under a large hat or like me hiding in the hotel room and every, and being like, I like to look at the water. Like that's my thing is like, I like to like have a nice view, but be inside. Yeah. One of my parents' earliest stories about me is me like throwing an actual fit where they had to like drag me to the beach, like drag my heels <laughs> across the concrete. And they were like, they were like, what kind of child do we have on our hands? Uh, do you do a lot of work from bed? I feel like it's a big taboo to say that you like work from the sofa or whatever. But if I'm writing or I'm like editing a podcast or if I'm just, it's just, I like curling up and just getting lost in the world. Yeah. But I, I just, I watch so many YouTube clips of like interviews with people. And I just, I find the internet can be a positive place, but it's, it's, it's hard to find your own little safe space. How do you feel to turn the question around on you? Like, have you found an internet routine every day that sort of, because I feel like routine is huge for me in just my life, like whether it's about food or my pets or my writing, like finding some sense of routine in a way that I work has been, and some consistency has been huge for my emotional and physical mm -hmm. health. Have you found like an internet routine that kind of works for you? I've definitely seen a shift in the happier that I get personally, the less that I share. Yeah. And I see that with quite a few of my other friends as well, who it, there's something true about the fact that I, I, ha I went out last night and had an amazing time. I've got one blurry picture. We don't know everything about each other. And, and I think that's the beauty now of coming out the other side of you don't have to share everything. I know. And there was a moment, I feel like it was like maybe three years ago, where like you were kind of waiting for the moment where the fun dinner would get broken up and everyone was like, pose. And Liz and I had a really fun dinner the other night with a bunch of girls in London who we've worked with or, you know, just had palships with. And no one pulled their phone out once. And then at the end... Again, we took one blurry photo, like had the waiter took one blurry photo as everybody was walking out. And I was like, what a beautiful thing, like to, because for everything to be captured so incessantly. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I grew up, my mom's a photographer. And so I grew up, I realized getting my picture taken constantly, but it had a very different tenor to it because it was like 
My mother was taking pictures that we wouldn't see for six months until she sent the film in to be developed. So it was like, I constantly was aware of like a camera being in my face. And when I look back at the photo albums, I'm like, when wasn't my family taking pictures of each other? But, and my mom probably has like three albums from every year that we've been alive, but it was a whole different energy because it was just like her with a camera around her neck, snapping a quick photo and then moving on and not like like looking back at her camera to edit it. And you're in the moment. I was thinking with with you and and having like being so lucky to meet you a few years ago as well about how oh my god I remember the first time you and I met in person and I was just like I want to touch your perfect face I wanted to lie down next to you on that you were on like a chaise long in that like hotel and I was lying down because I hadn't had my it was like two months before my first endometriosis surgery and my back was out and I was like Emma I'm so sorry but (gasps) do you know what happened someone was like oh I'm really sorry you know a a few things have to be shifted and then I just heard you going Emma my friend from Twitter and then I I think your um, publicist was like okay this you know this is happening then and I was like I feel so special I was like she's not going away (laughs) I'm just lying down during our interview which I feel very comfortable doing yeah but I love the fact that I feel like there's such a confidence in this final season and in you like I saw you on this on the panel it was a YouTube clip the Times talk mm-hmm. and you did this like mic drop of someone being like oh you're like are you like Hannah and hey, do you have similarities and like, that boring thing when people think that apparently Jemima is the same as Jessa and like all that stuff and then there was just when you said something like you know if I was like Hannah I wouldn't be this successful <laughs> but I was like thank you for saying that you're successful because mm. people really find that hard well it's interesting you say that this year has been the first year in my life that i'm capable of being like no actually my career has been a really amazing thing and i'm going to own that and i'm sure you feel this too like hard work is something to be proud of and it allows you to own your achievements and as women we are so trained to be like that wasn't me i just got so much help along the way even when you hear women be like i wouldn't be able to raise my children without my amazing babysitter and it's like but you work your ass off to pay for that babysitter and have a completely mutually beneficial relationship. It's like the amount of women who want to push their accomplishments aside or the amount of women who sort of, you know, who I hear belittle themselves and go like, I don't spend enough time with my kids and I also don't do well enough at my job. And I'm like, let's reframe that and say, you're doing both fucking spectacularly. And so I feel as though the one really good thing that came out of the amount of negative attention that I've gotten as a public figure was a real sense of just like, you know what? I don't have any, I don't owe you people anything. So it's like, you don't, it's easy when someone gives you a compliment to be like, no, 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 it wasn't me. But like, I think a positive of so much sort of like accusations of nepotism, accusations of anybody could do this job, whatever it was that was getting thrown at me from the sort of, you know, light snicker to to the totally dark barb. I was like, you know what? I don't have to now pretend not to be who or what I am. And I'm going to say it. And I think that a lot of that made its way into the writing of the last season, too, which was a sort of confidence to recognize, listen, we're going to get shit whether we write a perfect episode or whether we write an episode that, you know, whether we write an episode that perfectly suits everybody's needs or whether we write an episode that completely serves our own sort of storyline and interest. So let's just do the one that we want to do. And it's the last one. Go out with a bang. It's kind of a great feeling. You're like, well, we can't get canceled. So I guess, and you know, it was an amazing thing to get to, it's so rare in TV that you get to make as much as you want and then finish up with the characters the way you want. And and their journey is, you know, you'll see from the end of the season, Hannah's journey is not my journey, but there's something really sort of like metaphorically personal in what she's about to go through on the show.
I know it can't have been easy at times dealing with any sort of criticism, but I feel like everyone around you was able to be like, that could so easily be me. So therefore, thank you for teaching me how to deal with that. Because on a smaller scale, we all get it. I remember when I emailed you because I was going through a really hard time. It wasn't in any way on a, on the same scale, but I got like some really bad troll, like horrible criticism, yeah. but it was from other women who I admired. Like someone had said they didn't like something I did and it hurts so much. It's so much worse when it's- When it's I, someone that you're like, but I promise you if we met, we would get on and you've taken it the wrong way. I mean, I always feel like I can take criticism from like a trolley Republican white man till the cows come home. But when a woman who I think I share politics and beliefs with decides that I'm somehow not on her team, like nothing hurts like that. Mm -hmm. And you know what? There have been times where women have been right. I have done something that was, you know, racially insensitive or revealed my specific kind of privilege or, you know, just wasn't sort of taking into account the um, sociopolitical climate of the day. And I've always tried to go like, yep, I own that. But at the end of the day, I think that people have to practice more forgiveness Mm -hmm. and that everybody will have their day in a world where everyone's sharing every single opinion that crosses their desk in their mind. Everyone will have their day when they don't get it right. And our job is just to love each other through it and believe that everyone who is sort of trying has the best of intentions. And that's the way that I try to approach other women. And that's the way that I hope other women will approach me. It doesn't always happen. I mean, I really do have a policy that like, I will not respond to, you know, negativity. If I see like a 22 year old Jezebel writer talking about what an idiot I am, I'm going to let her have that because that's hers and there's no need. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no reason for me to write and go like, you know what? I actually think you and I would really connect. You seem like you care a lot about Planned Parenthood. And I seem like I care a lot about Planned Parenthood. It's like, that's what her journey is. And I just have to let her take it. And if it makes her feel empowered or rooted in herself to talk about what a fucking idiot I am, I can't control that. But that's never been, that's never assisted me Mm. on my path towards, like basically speaking about somebody else's like faults has never assisted me on my path towards, you know, wellness. But that's, I think the illusion of the internet is that somehow like we can regain control over our lives or our experiences by explaining the problem with other people's lives and experiences. Mm. And I think it's easy to confuse sort of the boldness of speaking out against, you know, white men who abuse their power or, you know, you know, government figures or just people who you feel victimized by. It's easy to confuse that with just like talking shit about people who annoy you. And I think those two things are really different. And I've had to learn, like, like, I remember early on in my career, I said something about like, I don't think it's a good thing for kids to see that Rihanna and Chris Brown got back together. And I'm like, That was literally like, there's no reason I ever needed to comment on that. Rihanna's my favorite person on the planet. Mm. Whatever she chooses to do with her life and the choices she makes as a woman are utterly personal. But I just didn't understand at age 25 that every thought I had about every person operating in my vicinity, it wasn't essential that everybody experienced that. But isn't it interesting and quite meta that you can look at your old self in a different way? I think that's kind of nice. To be almost like big sisterly about your past self. It's like, yeah, I said that. I mean, there's so many things I've said. Luckily for me, I had like three followers. The amount of stuff that people say. And I think sometimes I look at girls who will say, you know, I don't go on Twitter very often, but there was one day when I went on the day of the Women's March and got like a couple of like sassy tweets from like cute verified 21 year olds. And I was like, I was like, oh yeah, like I could have been that person. 
if I'd had access to Twitter and like a fan base at 21, I would have fully been just like telling you who annoyed me and telling you what they'd done and blah, blah, blah. And like, I have to kind of let those people, there's no use in me being like, actually, I'm a very nice lady. Like that would be insane. But you do feel tempted because you go, I'm sure you had that when you had that negative tension. Weren't you like, no, no, we'd be friends. Yeah, I was like, seriously, I messed up. I did. I said something I totally regret, but you can't now just hate me forever because we all change. And also I remember like reading, there's this, the last interview with Nora Ephron book. And there's yeah. a quote in there that says like, blogging is the, the definition of like blogging versus writing an essay is that blogs is what's ever on your mind at that specific time and for no longer. Yeah. It's like, that was your thought on that day and then it's gone. And so I always thought of blogging as like just kind of writing my thoughts and then the next day I might not think that anymore. Yeah. People don't give you, I actually think people give men so much more of a chance to grow up in public. Like Tom Hardy's allowed to be like, I'm bisexual. No, I'm not. Just kidding. Everybody's great. Like I just feel like big, handsome, beautiful men can just like go on their fucking journey and try things. I mean, you know, I've said this already, but it's like Mel Gibson gets to be like, I hate Jews. Just kidding. I'm getting nominated for an Oscar. And it's like, literally, there's no room for a woman to even go like, I have complicated relations with my body. Just kidding. I'm feeling better. Like it's women yeah. who change their minds are branded crazy. They're branded hysterical. They're, you know, you know, basically painted as like the kind of like lunatics of the public stage. And men who change their minds are sort of like lauded as like, he's really showing us his journey. And it makes me fucking crazy and not just on my own behalf because frankly like my friends and my boyfriend and my colleagues have way more of a sense of how I'm publicly perceived now than I do because I'm just sort of like in my house making things hanging out with dogs but I look at it when I see the coverage of other women and it just makes me or the way other women's writing is discussed and it just makes me loony if we see any headline whether it's like slating a woman or whether it's like some weird news that we might it might not be true it feels like now more than ever we need to do our own research yeah. you don't just retweet something without reading it and without reading like five different angles on something especially now because we live in a culture where like we literally can't be sure news is real so we need to engage and we need to like really look at the source and really look at the sources and like that's, I mean, I had that experience with my book because every piece of negative criticism of Click, my book. It was clickbait. And it all started in the Republican media and then made its way over to like places like Slate and Salon and whatever that I thought were sort of the like bastions of liberal thought. And whether those people ultimately came to the correct conclusion, which is that the, that it was insane sort of like Republican demonization of women, it almost didn't matter because their headlines still said, you know, Lena Dunham molest sister, question mark. And so it's like, that is designed to get people to click without thinking that is designed to get people to retweet without thinking. And it kind of made me be like, trust no motherfuckers. That made me so upset because I remember when you did the um, the South Bank chat with Catelyn Moran. Yeah. I remember the day, I remember the day that article came out because you were meant to go to, was it Germany or mm -hmm. somewhere? And I ended and up canceling. That, um, on the podcast that you did with Ashley, I think you said yeah. that you rang her and all that stuff. And I was just thinking, I just can't believe that this amazing book has been kind of tainted by some weird websites that... But the thing that's so crazy is now that those websites are like, you know, the guy who started Breitbart is in the White House. So it's like, we kind of don't get to... I realized I was like, okay, we don't get to like, kind of like look down our nose at them anymore because they have legitimized themselves in the eyes of at least a large percentage of America. So it's about thinking like, well, how do we 
combat the sort of proliferation of headlines that are misleading at best and totally fabricated at worst. And I don't know the answer yet. It will take someone much wiser about media than I am. But you may see like you can probably see that because you're on Twitter and I'm not looking every day, like the kind of lifespan of a thought on Twitter will be like everyone's outraged then everyone starts to question it. Then everybody changes their mind. Then it's gone. Yeah. And like I've said to a few people <laughs> so true. who have gotten in trouble on the Internet, I'm like, the worst part is going to be that everyone's going to forget in 24 hours and you're still going to have the bruise. It's like having a fight with a friend and they're like, I'm better. And you're like, I'm not. I'm really upset. You said a lot of really awful shit to me. So you, we all have to find like ways to care for ourselves. That's it. It's finding the balance between being in your own bubble versus being in the real world. But I feel like if you've got to do what you've got to do, it's okay to feel that way about the internet at the moment. It's so okay. And it's so okay to just feel like really, um, it's okay to just be like wounded by everything that we're seeing. Like, I feel like you've had it here with Brexit. We've had it in the US with our disastrous election. Like people need to understand that now more than ever, both because of the happenings in the world and because of the way that they're distributed to us, which is constantly aggressively on our phones all day long. I mean, my dad was saying like, when he was a kid, it was like, you got the newspaper in the morning and that was really how you got the news. And Mm -hmm. so all the developments of the day were sort of condensed into this digest that you read in the morning and reacted to. Now the entire day is this journey of like, Trump said this, oh wait, no, he didn't. Oh wait, yes, his advisor is saying that he did. And so it's like, we're on this kind of like adrenaline roller coaster. Which is why I subscribed to Lenny. You're so <laughs> sweet. Well, that was my hope was like, thank God it's digested in some sane way. Well, we, our hope when we started Lenny Letter was like, okay, someone's gonna, this is in your inbox. It's not interactive. And you can sit for 20 or 30 minutes with yourself and have an experience that's both sort of like reacting to the news, but also not, and just connecting to other women's perspectives. And like, that is the dream. And because being part of that news cycle is just so dizzying. Yeah, and you get to actually read in depth the true real experiences from the women and men who are going through it. I mean, that's like, and I think you know, like, wasn't why you got into blogging because of its, like, amazing ability to have this, like, kind of, like, first-person power to bring you into other people's immediate stories? Well, even now, yeah. this podcast, because I was going to ask, because I normally ask people on the podcast, like, what's next? But I feel like that's a really annoying question because you've just done all this stuff. Who, <laughs> like, why do, why do we ask that question? Well, it's so funny you say what's next because my boyfriend once did this video called What's Next for Jack Antonoff with our friend Mike Burbigley, who's a comedian. And he was like, what's next for Jack Antonoff? And Jack was like, I'm going to put out my album. And he's like, and what's next for Jack Antonoff? And Jack was like, uh, I guess I'm going to like get married and have kids. And he's like, and what's next for Jack Antonoff? And he's like, I'll age and then I'll eventually die. Like they just did this video where what's next kept leading to the eventual conclusion of like, I'm going to die. That's what my time on this planet is going to lead to. And I kind of, sometimes I love the what's next question because it forces me to think about it and give an easily digestible answer. And I think people ask the question because it's like, it's hopeful. And it's like, we're not just focusing on your past, we're focusing on your future. But right now I'm in the first moment in my life in a long time where I'm like, I don't know what's next, Emma. Like, And it kind of, at first it was causing me massive panic and now it feels pretty good. I'm yeah. like, what's next? Nothing. Yes. And we have this expectation that we're just going to churn it out and churn it out. And it's by the time my book comes out, it'll have been, you know, I think almost it'll be even like three and a half years. And I'm like, to me, I'm like, yep, that's how long it takes to write a book. But for a lot of people, they're like, actually, like there's like an expectation that you're just going to like 
get it done on the money every year. And like, we have to give ourselves, as my therapist would say, time to dream. Yes. Well, thank you so much. That was really enjoyable. Emma, I really adore you. I would come to work for you at any media empire that you run. And I feel extremely blessed that you exist. Thank you so much. Thank you for making me feel like a part of the internet, even though I no longer am. (laughs) 